Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. And for our friends in the United States, happy Thanksgiving weekend. I hope you're all finding time to be thankful for things. And, of course, stuff your faces with delicious food. Speaking of being thankful, you know what I'm thankful for? You. Yes, you. On the other end of those earbuds or speakers, listening to our show. Whether you're cooking a meal, doing laundry or dishes, on a train or bus commuting to work, or just driving in your car. It means a lot to us that you listen to our terrifying tales each week, and it's been a while since I've taken a moment to say thanks. So, thank you. Truly. I'm thankful, too, to those wonderful individuals who've submitted fiction since we swung open the rusted gates of our submission platform once again. And to those of you who've thought about it, but haven't gotten around to it yet, we're waiting. Let us help expiate those dark thoughts by unleashing them into the world for you. Better out than in, I always say. We've been a little lighter this submission period than usual, so if you've got friends, family, neighbors, enemies that write dark and disturbing fiction, why not point them in our direction? TalesToTerrify.com slash submissions. 
we promise to treat them accordingly. One final thanks goes out this week to our newest patrons, Joshua Sumrak and Catman J. Your diabolical donations are the ichor that oozes through our undead veins, and for that, we are incredibly thankful. Okay, enough of this sappiness. Let's get on to something darker. Time for some fiction. We have one tale for you this evening, which comes to us from Keith Rosen. Keith Rosen is the author of the novels Smoke City, Road 7, and The Mercy of the Tide, currently being developed for television by Josephson Entertainment. His story collection, Folk Songs for Trauma Surgeons, was published this year. His short stories have appeared in Black Static, Pank, Outlook Springs, Cream City Review, Phantom Drift, and others. He's also a legally blind illustrator and graphic designer, which certainly provides its own unique challenges and rewards, with clients that include Green Day, Against Me, and Warner Brothers. More can be found at KeithRosen.com. Children of the Night, join me for Keith Rosen's Eat Me, Season 8, Episode 1, a Tales to Terrify original. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
one of us doesn't make it inside. The pneumatic doors slide shut, and he does that horror movie thing where he crawls and slaps his hand against the glass, and it slides down in a weeping trail of blood. His scream sifts through the door. The cameraman zooms in on the red smear, the press of his hand. We can hear the director going ape shit over the intercom. They'll edit it out in post-production. My heart's still thundering. Feels like it's in my throat somewhere. We've just wrapped up pavement pandemonium, where they make us run from the edge of the parking lot back to get some stupid object, a flat of canned tomato soup, a pair of steel-toed boots, something inane, and then run back. Blood starts languidly pooling under the doors, and I turn away and will myself not to heave. Clean up on aisle three, Brad says next to me, like an asshole. He's dropped a frosted yum bomb wrapper on the floor. Nabisco's our sponsor for this episode, so we've been urged, though it's not in our contract, to eat as many yum bombs and vanilla nut smacks as we can. The clean up on aisle whatever line has become Brad's catchphrase, and this season's focus groups fucking adore him for it. He gives me that patented Brad smirk, the one that gets the producer's knees all wobbly. He's a natural. I hate him with every ounce. The guy, I don't know everyone's names, has stopped screaming, but I can still hear the blanks moaning through the doors. See their shapes all murky through the gore-smeared glass as the production crew gathers them with those big poles that have the collars at the end. This episode's director, Janet something, gets over the intercom and shuts everything down. They call in all the camera operators to film the body cleanup and review the footage they got of the guy being eaten. Shooting stops when someone dies on set. Months from now, when the episode airs, there will be a voiceover talking about what kind of guy he was, how he had a wife and kids at home, or something. They craft our narratives after we're dead. I try not to think of the story they'd write for me. I jam my fists into my pockets and walk towards the check-in kiosk. I'm still alive. Heart slamming like a fist against my ribs, adrenaline making my legs tremble, feeling like I might puke, but alive. That's what the show does to you, makes you brutally aware of how relentlessly, terribly, deliciously rooted in life you are. I'd never really watched the show. I don't get the allure of reality television. Kendra and my dad were into it. It was a thing they'd watch together when Kendra was in high school, and then later when she would come home for summer vacation. The two of them and a bowl of popcorn, the set turned up loud. I remember once I came home from a party, Kendra and I were both in college home for summer break, and on the way to the kitchen for another beer, I asked what they were watching. Eat me, Kendra said. Gross, the zombie show? They're called blanks, Lins, said my dad. Zombies are so passe. Your grandma and grandpa called them zombies. The blue light of the television reflected on his glasses. They're people, I said. They were people, said my dad. Now they're not much of anything, really. Dude, I mean, people get killed on this show. Get eaten. That's like the whole point of it. 
Kendra had actually rolled her eyes. I spent a lot of time wondering if the cancer was blooming inside her even then, if the cells were multiplying, attaching to the bones in her legs, her ribs, her lungs. They signed up for it, said my father. Ten million bucks if you make it, said Kendra. I'd do it. No, you wouldn't, I said. Kiss my ass, Kendra said. Ladies, said my father. Y'all are fucked up, I'd said, and gone into the kitchen. Language, Lindsay, he called after me. Kendra asked if there was any more popcorn. I pass a few familiar faces on the way to electronics. We don't really say much. We're occasionally put into teams for certain activities or missions, but the producers are very much into the mano-a-mano aspect of the show. If you want to form an allegiance, and some people try to, you can. I take a walk through the pet food section because I like looking at the pictures of the animals, and it's one of the few sections of the store that hasn't been too messed up yet. We still have a way to go before they start making us eat this stuff, later in the season's filming, when they stop giving us food. I spend a few minutes straightening the dog bowls and leashes and toys. It's just something that helps keep me a little calm. But then I keep thinking of the guy's hand slapping against the glass of the door. That poor man. And then it makes me think of the dog food in the cans. The meat in there. Pressed in and wet compacted and glazed, and I hurry on around the corner to electronics, my stomach roiling. The intercom squeals overhead, that two-note song that precedes an announcement, and then one of the show's producers says, in a voice positively acidic with cheer, 30 minutes until lights out, gang! 30 minutes until lights out! Safety preparations should begin at this time, and if you wanted to do a quick check-in, we sure wouldn't mind. Lights out will last for one hour. As always, good luck and good television. There are now 22 contestants left on Season 8 of Eat Me. 22. Congratulations to those of you remaining, and a moment of silence, please, for our recently fallen co-star, Chet. Check-in's just a photo booth, pretty much. A bench with a green screen behind it. There's a camera and a producer in a headset who asks you questions from a clipboard. I make it to check-in, and I see a blonde girl at the kiosk who's already done a ton of them, even though we're pretty early in the season. If you do enough check-ins, the more you talk, after all, the more the producers have to build a narrative with, you can eventually earn a weapon or phone token later in the season, once we've been winnowed down to the last dozen people and things are starting to get really ugly. It's an angle that works, at least for a while. I head back to home furniture and get ready for lights out. I'll do my check-in afterwards, or I'll be dead and won't give a shit. Kendra is my little sister, younger than me by two years, and she's the one full of light and noise and bluster. I've always been the quiet one, winnowed into myself. Kendra leapt first and always. She was the first to smoke a cigarette, to kiss a boy, to call our mom the B word, the first to lean away from their love or the supposed constraints of it. I was always the rule follower. I had graduated with a degree in communications and had been working for a nonprofit when I found out. 
We helped people with criminal records get suits and haircuts, help them with their resumes. My job constituted a lot of letter writing, fundraising, trying to infuse our social media accounts with just the right amount of solemnity and casualness. I was just happy to be out on my own, working a real job that I had to dress up for that was marginally in the field of my degree. Six months into the job, I got a frenzied phone call from my mother. It's Kendra, she said. I was sure she was dead. My mom's voice hitched again and again. She's been talking about pain in her legs, stomach pains, and I, mom, what? And then she said the word that would become like an incantation, a word flung like a dart, a word ever after whispered in hallways and corners, rooms where she couldn't hear. My sister, 23 years old, riddled with tumors in the bones of her legs, her spine, complaining of pain for months until one day she collapsed at school, her senior year at the State University, finally ready to move out of our folks' place and got herself an ambulance ride. X-rays at the hospital showed her bones littered with minute cluster bombs, rampant cells gone mad, osteosarcoma. I moved home, kept my job even though the commute was way crazier. All of us, me and my parents, worked at circling up around Kendra as if our proximity could work its own magic against her sickness, as if love itself could heal anything. Lights out in five minutes. Lights out in five minutes. An hour a night, they shut off all the lights in the store and let some blanks in. The blanks were camera feeds fitted with night vision. We can hide or we can fight. I've got my setup in home improvement where I've covered the aisle in bubble wrap so I can hear them coming. It's what passes for an alarm because the blanks can be quiet. If they're new and they don't stink, you can hardly tell they're around. Sometimes they'll just grab you out of the dark, bite you, and then drag you into a corner somewhere underneath some covered area. We'll finish lights out and you'll see these arching trails of blood and then the bodies of people that you've just talked to an hour before splayed out like crash test dummies, loops of their own guts in a calligraphy all around them. I've got a little nest made in home improvement section. I've set up stacks of canned food at the end of each aisle, tall enough that I have to step over them on my tiptoes, then the bubble wrap. Then I step on a chair and pull myself up onto the empty shelf at the tip and then pull the chair up and set it next to me. I'm five or six feet up in the air, and a lot of the store is visible, at least when the lights are on. So much of the show is just this low thrum of fear all the time, and then huge gouts of it, like a faucet turned on. When you hear the blanks move around but not see them, when you can hear them run into stuff and hear people's screams popcorning throughout the store, that's when the faucet turns on. I put my football helmet on, my heavy-duty rubber gloves. My throat is so tight, I make a kind of shuddering whisper when I breathe. I sit cross-legged with a pair of two-foot garden shears in my lap. These paltry acts of self-defense. They can reach up here and pull me down by an ankle. I know it, but it's all I have. 90 seconds! Lights out in 90 seconds! I see Jamal, one of the few people I know by name, speed walking towards kitchenware. He gives me a thumbs up and I manage a smile. And then the lights go out and the noises begin.
I was walking Terrence on the beach one drizzly afternoon when I came across a flyer for the Eat Me auditions. It was stapled outside the public bathrooms, the poster garish and water-warped and bedeviled with a ton of different fonts, the whole thing looking surprisingly like something a junior high student would come up with. I spent a minute deciphering it while Terrence sniffed the horror show that was the entranceway to the men's bathrooms. It had been four months since my sister's diagnosis. We were inundated with terms. Metachronus. Juxtacortical. Pagetoid. Telangiac tactic. That eventually took on the cadence of dice gathered in a cup and tossed on the table. Nonsense sounds. My sister underwent chemo and spent months bone sore and nauseous and constipated. She bruised at the touch. Both of us back in our old bedrooms like time had stopped. Her hair became dust fine, brittle, then fell out in swatches. My sister became a stick-legged girl, a girl with her curtains shut against the daylight. The chemo took, and then it didn't. The doctors found extraskeletal osteosarcoma, another tumbling dice word, which meant more tumors, this time at previous radiation sites. Kendra lay in bed, binging Netflix on bone-chewed legs. Some days, my dad couldn't handle the appointments, and I'd go in his place. The thing with Kendra had chewed up both their PTO to nothing. My mom and I went to a meeting with the doctor after we'd been informed about the extraskeletal thing, the new tumors. The doctor was a study in seriousness. I imagined her playing basketball, eating dinner, hooking up with some woman she'd met at a wine bar or a country club somewhere. All of it seemed more realistic than her sitting there and telling us that resegmentation and prosthetics might be the next step. It's something worth considering, she said. What is that? I asked. Resegmentation, what is that? So studious, this doctor. So calm. It means removing sections of tumorous bone in her legs and replacing it with prosthetic segments. What about the tumors on her spine? She nodded gravely, touched the pen on her desk as if to reassure herself. That isn't an option with the tumors on her spine. We're still looking at radiation therapy as the best solution for those. My mother balled her little fists over her purse. She sat there ramrod straight. How much is all of this going to cost? It's an aggressive option, financially and otherwise. I drove us home in my Nissan with a duct-taped side-view mirror. Rain was falling, the windshield wiper scraping against the glass while my mother wept into a napkin she'd found in the glove box. This was our normal. Kendra needed a wheelchair to get around, and there was a lot of veiled talk of how to get the tumors on her spine without paralyzing her. Kendra vacillated, understandably, between jagged bouts of acidic contempt and woeful self-pity. I didn't blame her. My parents were in the process of remortgaging the house when I came across the flyer. I walked Terrence back home and knocked on Kendra's door. Her room was gloomy, fetid, curtains pulled, clothes everywhere, her wheelchair like something sleeping at the foot of her bed, pill bottles and cotton wads and prescription pamphlets on her nightstand. She lay in bed in a pink PSU sweatshirt and a knit cap, mounded in blankets, 
It looked like God had punched her in the face. Her eyes were so puffy. You look like shit, she said, and I laughed so hard. Kendra smiled, adjusted her blankets. I sat down at the edge of the bed. How you feeling? Cancery, how are you? Terrence stood in the doorway, big and dumb and sweet. My mom hated to let him in there because she was worried that he would jump on Kendra and hurt her, but she patted the bed and he walked over and just put his head right next to her, just standing there with his head on the bed, and I started crying. Please don't cry, Linz, said Kendra, still looking at the dog. I can't deal with any more crying today. I knuckled tears away. Okay, I said. I'm sorry. She looked at me then, that skull on a knob of bone that was her neck, and gestured at her laptop. She said, you want to watch this with me? And oh, I should have. I should have gotten under the covers with her and let Terrence get up on the bed. I should have brought her a glass of water and counted her pills and felt the stick-like warmth of her arm against mine, her stick leg against mine, her beating heart, that blood still rushing through her. Instead, I told her I loved her and that I had an appointment. Then I drove down to the convention center and auditioned. Lights Out is designed to break you. This season is being filmed in a massive three-story superstore that includes a grocery store, drugstore, gardening, electronics, and home improvement sections, all of it unpopulated save for the season eight contestants of Eat Me. One-stop shopping, every avenue of capitalism stacked and tiered in a single glass, marble, and cinder block building. The floors are glossed to a sheen. The aisles are orderly and teeming. This is a building that signifies order, commerce, lawfulness, all of that, and then they fling you into the dark with things that bite. I sit on the top shelf, my hands slicked with sweat inside the gloves. Someone lets loose a kind of gibbering turkey gobble sound, some distraction or enticement to draw the blanks near. We get points for kills, the more gruesome the better, but I'm playing the long game, defensive. Points mean nothing if you get bit, if you die. Occasionally, I hear a scattering of groans throughout the store. Some of the blanks still have working vocal cords. I hear glass shatter somewhere. The entire store, as well as the blanks, are fitted with night vision cameras. The producers will edit this horror into something cohesive and linear. My mouth floods with spit. Below me to the left, someone steps on the bubble wrap I've laid along the aisle floor. Pop, pop, pop. My heart shudders, becomes a fist in my chest. Pop, pop, pop. I catch a whiff of rot. My throat threatens to close. Someone far away screams, a long wail that stops, only to start again. Anguish and blood run all through it. Pop, pop, pop. Something touches my foot, feathers it. I grip the handles of the shears, raise them above my head. Jamal. I whisper, though of course it isn't Jamal. A hand tightens around my ankle and squeezes. Below me comes a wet, liquid snarl. I bring the shears down, strike something with give. I bring them down again. I'm panting, trying not to scream, and I bring the shears up and down again. When I pull them up, I hear the tumble of a body below me. I'm panicking, about to scream, and I stand up on the shelf, and it's dark, and then I'm falling. There'd been a line snaking through the lobby of the convention center. 
we were given paperwork to fill out while we waited. The forms were simple. Biographical information, lists of allergies, criminal convictions, a box to be checked if a friend or loved one had ever, quote, experienced post-mortal animation. The only people animated nowadays were death row executions and people who donated their bodies for the federal cash payout their relatives got. Blanks were used for medical research, and the government had a contract to provide them to the networks for various shows. Eight seasons now, and Eat Me was still enormously popular. The line kept growing behind me. It seemed crazy. The uncensored footage of what happened to the contestants was all over the internet. I had no misunderstanding of what would happen if I wasn't the winner, but I also knew what would happen if Kendra couldn't continue chemo and that my folks were about to lose their house. They had to keep their jobs. But there were significant cash bonuses if you got chosen as a contestant and additional payouts for family or loved ones after you lost your place on the show. The season winner got $5 million. One of the staff came down the line and motioned for my application. He glanced over it and then put it in a folder and stamped my hand. A purple tooth. The line surged forward and I thought about turning around and walking out. Finally, maybe an hour later, I stood in front of a panel of producers, two men and two women. I'd signed a consent form to have my interview filmed, and a camera woman walked around me. I tried not to stare at the lens as she passed. They asked me to repeat certain information, my age, hometown, if I'd watched the show before. I answered tersely, still a little nervous. So, said one of the producers, a man with gelled blonde spikes and a tattoo of barbed wire around one freckled bicep. He stared down at my paperwork. Let me ask you a question. Okay. He smiled and stapled his fingers in front of his lips. Lindsay, let's say you're in a... Tanya, where are we doing this show this year? Another producer, a chillingly beautiful black woman with a septum piercing big enough to hang my car keys off of, shook her head. You can't tell the peons that, Frankie. Privileged information. She winked at me. Okay, Frankie said, hunching forward. Fine. Say we're filming in a gas station this year, Lindsay. Okay, I said. And Lindsay, they're coming for you. All sides, they're coming for you. Your education, your money, your abundant good looks. Tread carefully, said Tanya. None of that's going to help you when the blanks come tumbling down upon you. They're coming for you. So? He leaned back, drummed his ringed fingers on the tabletop. I waited. So what? I finally said. So what do you do, dear? I'm surrounded? Yep. Frankie beamed, utterly. I shrugged, thinking of Kendra's mottled bones, her saying she felt cancery, and how I couldn't stop the tears, couldn't hold them back, how life just seemed to drop bad news on your head like an anvil. I said, I guess I find a motherfucker to push down in front of me, Frankie. God, he laughed so hard at that, positively cackled. Well, you're interesting, Tanya had said. Frankie said, do you think you can murder someone, Lindsay? Didn't the Supreme Court say that the blanks are technically not alive, so they can't actually be murdered? See, now you're just being obtuse, Frankie said. You think you can kill a blank? Look in that desiccated, warped face. 
those eyes and do what you need to take first place? I don't have any choice, I said. I got the email a week later. I signed another form and they sent the signing bonus right into my account the next day. I gave it to my parents. I had two weeks of freedom before we started filming at the store in Dallas. I fall off the shelf and land on the blank. He, she, it cushions my fall. Gas and sluggish blood explode from the body when I land, and I resist the urge to just fall into the pit inside my own mind and just scream myself hoarse until they devour me. The blood is lukewarm and gelatinous. I vomit a thin gruel of vanilla nut smacks between my fingers onto the blank's shattered, weeping skull, trying to be as silent as I can. The blood stinks, smells fouled. I take a long, hitching breath as the sounds continue around me. I gather my shears and quietly, as quietly as I can, get off the body, off the bubble wrap, and climb back onto the shelf, telling myself that if it happens again, if another one comes, I'll put the shears against my eye and jump off. I can't stop crying. The blood covers me like an oil. I can sense the blank on the floor beneath me, howling through the world like a dead star. In Dallas, we were given a two-day training on blank behavior and briefed on the show's rules. There weren't many. Check-ins were mandatory. Escape attempts meant forfeiture of your assets and strenuous years-long litigation. We'll take the shirt off your back and then take the next shirt you look at, too, was how the network lawyer phrased it to us. We can even hunt each other, technically, though no one's ever done it before. Lastly, the show really was about people, they insisted. As if we'd never seen an episode before. As if we were unaware of how they spliced heavy-handed, emotionally overwrought storylines into the narrative and countered it with pixelated, wide-frame shots of those same emotionally overwrought people being eaten alive. We knew. They'd make of us what they wanted. The lights come back on and the staff start the siren that draws all the blanks to one corner of the store where they can be corralled and put away. I peer down at the blank on the floor. It's a woman and something in me threatens to break when I see that. She has long knotted gray hair and a filthy pink house dress. They dress them up in certain ways, almost like costumes. I know it's an effect that they're going for, but this one, she reminds me of my mom and her eyes are vacant and blown out, staring past me at nothing, nothing at all. This is my first one. I can't do this. I sit on my little stupid perch and weep, holding my shears and covered in the dead blank mom's blood. I see Brad peer down my aisle on the way to check-in. He has a blank severed head in one hand, swinging it by its filthy matted hair. He's got a yum bomb in the other hand. Whoa, nice job, Linz, he says. He looks at me in a new way, like I'm someone he might actually have to compete against at some point. Gotta go turn this in, he says, lifting the head. Gonna get me a flashlight, baby. He winks and is gone. A production intern comes by. She's about my age, wearing cat's eye glasses and a pantsuit with the network's logo on the back. She's got a clipboard. Lindsay, she says. Are you okay? You've got check-in. 
I, I can't do this, I say. I literally cannot stop crying. Oh, you have to, she says, looking up at me. She steps on the bubble wrap and it pops. You just do, hon. I can't. They'll take everything, she whispers, and I know she's not talking about the blanks. When I flew back home before filming started, the house seemed suffused with some terrible quietness. I felt like a ghost haunting my own house. My signing up for the show and getting selected had changed everything. My parents were bereft and hardly spoke to me when I came back. My father seethed with anger, and my mom could hardly look at me without starting to cry. To them, it felt like they were on the cusp of losing two daughters. There were 36 contestants at the beginning of each season, and that number, the producers told us, would be whittled by half in the first week. A season's worth of episodes took place over a month. I wanted to tell them, but five million dollars, you guys except even I know that wasn't why I was doing it. Part of it was the money, and Kendra, or my folks. But also there was just something in me that leaned towards it. Leaned towards that simplicity I had talked about with Frankie. That notion of survival. Bodies against bodies. Like Kendra had suddenly been pitted against herself. It was a tense two weeks. You're a fucking idiot. Kendra told me a few minutes before my Uber came to pick me up. Love you too, sis. I'm serious, she said. She was laying on the couch covered in blankets, wearing a sweatshirt and her big hat with the ear flaps. She was always cold now. She couldn't really walk that well, and a lot of times my dad just picked her up and carried her around like she was a little kid. She said, you never even liked the show, Lindsay. Now you're going on it? Are you suicidal or just fucking stupid? I looked at my dad. What, you don't care about her language? He shrugged unhappily, his hands in pockets. She was speaking for all of them. Look, I said, hoisting my bag over my shoulder, willing myself not to start crying. I'll be back in a month. You two will get to retire, and you will be getting some sweet, sweet radiation that will straight up knock the dicks off those tumors, all right? Kendra said, think I have a month, Lindsay? My mother covered her face and wept, and my Uber came. After check-in, yes, I killed a blank. Yes, I was scared. Yes, I sure do have a lot of blood all over me. Yes, a shower sure would be great. Haha. <laughs> and remember, try a Nabisco Yum Bomb for a total mouth explosion. I head over to one of the phone banks. We always have some free time after a lights out. We'll draw red cards for one more mission after dinner and then it's off to sleep in the parking lot in our trailers. The mood's light, since none of us died just now. Contestants are allowed three phone tokens a season, but we can earn extra ones if we do stuff like Brad does, cut off heads and things like that. I still have all three of mine. I've held off calling my folks, or Kendra, or anyone. But it's time. I've killed a blank now, and I've crossed some line. I can feel it inside me. This sense that things have changed irrevocably. It feels weird to say, but I'm committed in a way I wasn't before. I want to win. I want to go home. I want to sleep in my bed. I want Kendra to burp out the alphabet at our kitchen island while I make us eggs. 
both of us hungover and giggling in our pajamas, our mom giving us both kisses before she steals my coffee cup, my dad coming down later, rumpled and sleepy, his hair still in corkscrews. I call my folks' landline and hang out before it goes to the answering machine. We get our tokens back if we can't reach anyone. I call my Kendra cell phone next, and the same thing happens. Same with my mom, and by then, I can feel sweat running down my back, convinced that Kendra is gone and they're afraid to tell me. Something like that. My dad picks up right away. Dad? Linz? Yeah, it's me, I say. What's going on? Why aren't you guys answering? He lets out a shaky breath, and I realize I've been holding mine in since I started dialing him. Kendra's in the ICU, he says. She fell down. She fell down? Like, at home? Yeah, he said. He starts crying, and my panic is like a weed that blooms inside me, growing bigger by the second, threatening to overtake everything. I've never, like ever, heard my dad cry before. She tried to make it down the stairs by herself. She fell down the stairs? I know, honey. It's fucked. Everything is so fucked up. They're looking to see if it's in her lungs now. They think they found it there. Wait, what? Is she hurt? Yeah, she's hurt, honey. I mean, she fell down the fucking... Hold on, your mom's waving me. Uh, baby, I gotta go. I'm so sorry. You okay? I look down at my jumpsuit, slipped in blood. I shut my eyes. Yeah, I'm okay. All right. I love you. I'll talk to you soon. I hang up and try to tell myself that there is no such thing as a favorite daughter. There is a daughter who has chosen to put herself in harm's way and is in another state. And there is a daughter at home dying from something that chose her. It's still a cut that aches. Before dinner, I find a member of the production crew, the one with the cat's eye glasses, and ask her about a leave of absence for a family emergency. She winces and calls over a producer who pulls up my contract on her tablet and shows me the clause where I would face legal and financial action for leaving the show, regardless of circumstance. My sister is dying. I'm so sorry, says the producer. It says it right here. I mean, she's really dying, like right now in a hospital bed in Portland. She has cancer in her lungs. Do you understand me? I'm so sorry, she says again. It's in your contract. Dinner is like dining on paste and ditch water, something to get through. Laughter, the clack of our plastic cutlery. I can see the blanks in their pens outside in the parking lot. Someone from production sprays them down with some kind of solution that slowed down decomposition and muted the odor of rot. The blanks cover their faces and step back, some of them falling over each other. And it weirds me out that they can flinch and be made uncomfortable. What kind of undead automatons turned away from something? Brad drops his tray down next to mine and lifts his chin in greeting. He has a roll on his tray that he runs through a smear of pale butter and throws the whole thing into his mouth. He spears a chunk of overdone steak with his knife and then uses it to point out the window. I freaking love seeing them like that, man. With their hands over their faces? Falling over each other to get away? He nods, slurps the steak off the tip of his knife. Give them a taste of their own medicine. I guess. 
It's a gnarly world out there. If it's them or me, I'll do what I have to do every time. That was nice work today, by the way. Your first one? I nod. It gets way more fun, Brad says. Did you get your flashlight? He brightens. Fuck no, they were out, supposedly. But they had those big-ass gloves that go up to your elbows. Good for bites. I grabbed those. I'm approaching small talk with Brad, and I hate it. But then I realize that if I didn't, Kendra will fill my thoughts again. I ask him if he thinks he's going to win. He finishes chewing and says, I think you're going to win, probably. Me? You're playing it quiet. Fucking loud, brash guy always comes in second. The winner's the one who keeps it low. Surprises. He slurps some coffee. I got too big of a fucking mouth. You don't seem worried. I'm wrong a lot of the time, too, and I'll still jump on your shoulders to get away if it comes to that. Brad wipes his mouth with a napkin. Maybe we could hook up later. What? Shit, man. He jams the rest of his roll into his mouth. Just putting it out there. Two people. Death right outside the window there. Just think about it. My sister's dying, I say. Brad stands up, massages my shoulder with one hand. Well, maybe you need to get your mind off of it. Every night after dinner, the remaining contestants reach their hand into a box and pull out a card. If your card's black, you've got some more free time before you head out to your trailer. Draw a red card, and you spend the night in the store. They let in a few blanks at intermittent times, and there's usually some challenge you have to do. The lights are on, but it's still terrifying, and then you drag ass the next day. Tired people die on the show. Tonight, three of us draw red cards. Me, Jamal, and Brad. Brad snorts and claps his hands like he's just won something. Jamal looks pained, like he's solving some kind of math problem. I look down at my red card. I have no idea what my face looks like. Kendra's in the hospital. They won't let me leave until the show's over. I think of Brad casually saying, death right out the window there, like it's some kind of catchphrase. The three of us are brought into the store, where one of the producers informs us the blanks they let in tonight will be wearing rubber suits. What? Jamal licks his lips. What's the point of that? The producer opens a suitcase and hands each of us a hunting knife. Serrated and gleaming, it looks like something a Dungeons & Dragons character would have beneath his cloak. Fucking awesome, Brad says. We're given five minutes to prepare. I travel up to the top floor. I don't want my old spot anymore, not after blank mom. I go up to the kids' section. Sound carries in odd ways up here. I can hear echoes drift up. The knife in my hand is a weight. The blade is a charcoal gray. The tip, a gleaming oily black. It looks ridiculous. I think of Kendra, bruised, her body replicating the wrong cells, a darkness that's spreading to her lungs. My sister, falling down the stairs, hurting herself. The blank mom in the pink dress. I touch the edge of the knife with the tip of my thumb, and nothing happens. Seconds later, the cut wells with blood. It's in your contract. They signed up for it. I walk to the end of the aisle, look around. This is as calm as I've felt in months, since I stood in line at the convention center. Before that, since Kendra went to the doctor, there at the end of the aisle, I listen. The blanks, 
Those rubber suits will make them hard to cut. That's the point. But Brad and Jamal won't be hard to cut. A drop of my blood trembles, falls to the floor. If I want to go home, I need to be the last. What's the worth of a blank compared to a person? How do we place value on each of them? They both raise their hands to ward off pain, to protect themselves. Blank mom was alive once. This thing I did. I take a deep breath and I take a step forward and each step is easier. I start hunting. That was Keith Rosen's Eat Me, Season 8, Episode 1, as read by Kat Woodford. Kat is an ER nurse and educator in Northern Maryland, where she lives with her husband, stepson, Cat Stinky, and dog, Bark W. Griswold. She loves all things horror and says the things she has read and watched are nothing compared to the horrors she has seen in real life. When she's not working in a hospital or voice acting, you can find Kat sailing with her family or riding motorcycles with her husband. Thank you, Kat. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Kathy Robinson and Amanda Gottfried, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free and extended episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. 
Join us again next week as we twist the laws of nature with more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.